Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. As artificial intelligence continues to advance and reshape banking, achieving a high level of AI maturity becomes crucial for financial institutions to remain competitive and relevant in the modern landscape. But what determines an organization's AI maturity? Evident has just published an extensive study on AI innovation and maturity across major banks. Their research analyzed 60 of the largest banks in North America and Europe to understand how banks are positioning themselves for an AI-driven future. I'm excited to have Alexandra Musavisade, co-founder and CEO of Evident, on the Banking Transform podcast. We'll be discussing what determines a financial institution's AI maturity, the advantage AI maturity provides, and how organizations can keep pace with the market leaders. To stay competitive, banks need to develop an innovation strategy, invest in talent, and fully embrace AI's potential. There are still many unknowns, but one thing is clear. AI maturity will increasingly separate the winning banks of the future. So welcome to the show, Alex. It is somewhat amazing to me how fast we moved from Evident introducing this exciting research study and the two of us being able to dig into the findings. But I really appreciate your time today. Before we discuss your research, can you share a little bit about yourself and your firm? Jim, thank you so much for, for having me. I'm, I'm so delighted to be here on your, on your show. Um, well, a little bit about myself. I'm, um, I'm a Danish economist. I did uh, my degree in economics, mathematics, and I actually did my thesis in game theory, which at the time, back in 95, seemed a little quaint, but um, <laughs> has definitely come barreling back and been of great use now covering AI. So much of, of that rests on, well, not all of it, but a lot of it on sort of game theoretical principles. But um, I uh, have spent my, my whole career building indices. I've been at Moody's on the sovereign side. I've been head of country risk management at um, Morgan Stanley, and I've run an index called the Prosperity Index. And over the last five years, I was head of intelligence at, at a media company in the UK where we were commissioned to do the first ever global AI index measuring the strength of national AI ecosystems, which we got commissioned to do back in 2017 and launched the index in 2018. And that was really my first foray into um, getting really deep into the weeds of measurement of AI development and deployment, but at a national level. Um, It became quite clear uh, two years ago that this was something that businesses were really keen to to get as well, i.e. getting a measurement of where they stood against their peers on their AI adoption journey, and hence um, um, circled out and set up Evident, uh, which uh, produces the Evident AI Index on AI adoption, which we launched in January this year. So we um, have been at the you know, the sort of the in the engine room of, of measurement of AI for more than half a decade, but Evident itself um, only launched and became visible six months ago, which of course was very good timing with the release of ChatGPT and the discussions around generative AI, uh, which has put definitely AI at the top of um, every CEO's mind and in every board pack, not only in the banks, but across every sector. But we have focused on the banks first, um, but we will cover more sectors. So that being said, what motivated Evident to undertake this research of AI maturity in banking specifically? What were you hoping to uncover? Yeah, well, we, we definitely saw there was a white space, so to speak, in terms of a lack of data-driven analysis and measurement of AI adoption. And seeing this white space and seeing that no one had, had attempted to do this Um, the motivation for stepping in was not only that this is something that we were quite experienced in, i.e. the sort of measurement um, of, you know, what is the concept of an AI ecosystem? How do you measure it? What are all of the components that go into measurement of uh, uh, an AI ecosystem? So we felt we were definitely the right team at the right time in a space that hadn't been been covered uh, before. So um, we call it, that was, um, you know, it was the right, people at the right time stepping into a into a white space. Well what we hope to uncover was was you know when you when you put something on a benchmark that has never been done before you're you're suddenly creating a lot of transparency where there hasn't been any. 
And um, secondly, you know, you're, you're establishing the blueprint for what, you know, what is AI adoption. So you're setting the, you're putting a stake in the ground and, and really setting the, um, the goalposts or establishing what you, we hope to be the gold standard for AI adoption. So if you, if you articulate what is AI adoption and how do you measure it and you're the first to go out and do that, um, hopefully we over time can emerge as, as a sort of a global standard benchmark for AI adoption, not only for banks, but across all sectors and also government as well. So when you're looking at AI adoption, that's not exactly the same as AI maturity because AI maturity puts measurements on what things are important. So when you're developing this research, did you predetermine what AI maturity was be composed of or did it come out of the research? And secondly, how do you get the information? How do you get the data? Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a very good question. I, I mean, we, de- we do predetermine. And that is based on a lot of experience in what is it that, what are the factors that are important in AI maturity? What do you need to have in place? And so those components are um, really four. We look at your entire talent stack. How how talented is um, your your entire sort of end-to-end AI talent in your company? What is your innovation stack? So what kind of... um, what kind of infrastructure do you have in place? Um, where, how is your data organized? What is your innovation strategy? Um, do you, you know, do you run a centralized or a decentralized model? Do you build? Do you buy? Um, how much do you do, you know, uh, research? How do you infuse your bank with an innovative mindset? Um, do you patent this? Do you partner? For um, you, you, there are lots of ways to think about. AI implementation accelerators, and they can come in many forms. You can partner with big tech um, to help do that. You can partner with universities. You can you can work with a lot of vendors. Uh, you can invest in AI companies and and take leading roles in those, and with the view to onboard those capabilities in your in your company. So there's sort of many levers you can pull on the innovation side, and we look at all of those. And we don't pass judgment on necessarily what's best. We just uncover these are the many ways that banks go about it. And we try and weight it relatively equally. But we do select them on a predetermined um, basis in the sense that we know that these are the, these are the, 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 this is the range of, of, of tools or levers that you can pull. And we, we, we map that. And then we also look at leadership. Um, it's interesting because in a, at the end of the day, you know, leadership is at the heart of what drives an innovative company because you've got to set a vision. You've got to know where you're going. That narrative has to be very clearly expressed both, both internally and externally. And how you organize your company is, um, is, is quite, uh, you know, a determining factor on how quickly you can, you can run because you need to have um, a, a sort of a straight line to to management if you want to uh, present use cases and solutions that are AI driven and make some decisions pr- pretty quickly. So you need to have an organizational structure that is quite nimble for that. And that's very different from, you know, prior, you know, organizational structures. So we see that there has to be made changes on that as well. And then we, our fourth pillar, we look at responsible AI and the visibility of, of um, the sort of the the, the, the position that the banks are taking on on really bringing that up to the forefront and looking at what it is what these banks are doing um, expressing how they're handling the data what controls do they have in place what principles are they following is an extremely nascent uh, area of reporting but we're trying to create the checklist of what um, yep. you know what good good behavior looks like so how do you get your information your inputs? Yes, this is, uh, we use, uh, we're, uh, we, we are uh, outside in, we take an outside in approach, which is, um, it has definite benefits, but also a few drawbacks. The benefits are that we don't rely on any surveys. Uh, we um, can source this data externally. It's all resting on publicly available data, which means that we mine millions of data points that sit in the external footprint of the banks. Um, this are, these are areas that, that the banks themselves will express through strategies and IR documents and, um, you know, job openings and 
communications with regulators and so on. But then we also mine a lot of third-party data sources uh, where we look at investment profile, what, what banks are investing in, patent repositories, H-indexes, everything to do with research um, and, and, and lots of other external sources. That means that we then compile all of this data that makes the comparisons comparable because there's no subjectivity in it. The methodology is set, the data is sourced from publicly available data, and that means that it is, um, it's, it's completely uh, you know, objective, if you, if you like. Um, it doesn't rely on any surveys, and surveys are, are, are great in certain instances, but, but on, on, on areas such as these, you know, it depends very much, you know, if you were relying on surveys, it would depend on who do you speak to in the bank? Um, where exactly do they sit? I know sit, that one real know? well, yeah. So, yeah, so there's some pitfalls. So um, there are certain things that you can't see, obviously, is, is looking at some of the struggles that the banks have from taking a model from, product, you know, from ideation into production uh, and looking at what sort of return on investment you're getting from a particular model in a particular use case. But that's something we're going to be working on next year, where we are actually going to do a bit of the reverse, as in an inside out, where we're going to be uh, looking at a proprietary data set that are looking at slightly more sensitive data that the banks do want to share, but don't want to put in the public sphere. Got you. So I would imagine, maybe I'm taking a leap here, but generative AI actually helps your process of collecting information, doesn't it? Well, we do use gen. We do use uh, generative AI uh, for for some things. It's still not not as accurate as we would have hoped. Uh, so we don't rely on it fully yeah. because there's always got to be a human in the loop to yep. to check on on accuracy. But there's certainly um, ways in which that it helps us a lot. You know, you you um, you can use it to crawl over a lot of the data and, and come up with um, some correlations that you might not have spotted yourself. Um, but also we do synthesize a lot of data. So it's really nice to be able to use some of these generative um, tools um, to, to generate, you know, some of our, you know, ideas for insights as well, because with this incredibly large data set, um, sometimes it's a bit hard to put your own, wrap your own arms around. It's quite nice to have a large language model tool to, to, to support in that, in that effort. You know, so one of the big takeaways from your research was the high concentration of AI innovation among just a, a truly a handful of banks. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, five banks published 67% of the research and filed 94% of the patents. Why is this level of concentration occurring? Is it logical that these are the ones that had the money or is it deeper than that? Well, I think it's a. I think it's a. It's a lot deeper than that. I mean, money does um, absolutely help. <laughs> it's an. It's expensive endeavor um, to to invest in AI. It takes a lot of uh, investment in infrastructure and research um, and and talent, uh, of course. But what we saw when we released the index back in January that the the top ten were were dominated by North American banks, uh, by the U.S. and the Canadian banks. And, and in that mix, there are some, some big players like JP Morgan that comes top of the index, but also maybe some, some smaller and less expected players sit in the top 10, such as RBC and TD from Canada uh, and others. And what we saw was the common denominator was that a couple of things. First of all, the, the leadership in those banks that sit in the top 10 had taken a, made a decision six, seven years ago that they were going to be tech first. They were going to be AI-driven banks. They were not going to be better banks helped by technology. They were going to become tech companies that, um, you know, were financial services, you know, um, you know, obviously at the heart. But they were going to model themselves on big tech, which means, you know, setting up R&D centers, um, investing heavily in AI talent, um, really thinking about organizational structures and how to infuse the banks with um, an innovative culture. Um, and and we, we know that you know, from interviews with the, with the leadership of the banks that they very early on thought about that model was the right one when thinking about how to transition the banks to become AI-led. And we can see that now, sort of six, seven years later, that that has really paid off. And typically, that has been the North American banks and not so much the European banks. So we see the North American banks really pull ahead in these structures, which means that they've also invested in pure um, 
AI research and applied AI research, and they've they publish research much more than the European counterparts do, because again, modeling on big tech, you know, publishing research has the added benefit of attracting AI talent. AI talent is a is a very rare um, resource. Um, there are not that many out there, and they've got lots of other places to go other than banks. So banks really have to think about how do we how do we become a an attractive place for AI talent. What does the AI talent want? They want to be able to publish. They want to be able to speak at conferences and and submit papers. They want to participate in the open source ecosystem. They want to have lots of interesting um, use cases to work on. And and we need to be um, a place that can provide all of this for the AI talent. There is a war on talent. Um, The report we did prior to the innovation report was a deep dive into AI talent and how that flows. And it was remarkable to see, again, you know, it follows uh, what the innovation report showed, you know, the, the, the talent follows and goes into the banks that has that, that, have that, that, has that kind of structure. So um, it is a self-reinforcing um, way of uh, organizing yourself. Um, and my, my worry is that, you know, the, the, the better that the sort of stronger banks do, the more, you know, more capable they are of attracting the good talent and you know being able to harness the ai innovation as it happens which is accelerating and being able to onboard that uh, relatively swiftly because they have the ai talent and the right infrastructure and the right organizational structure whereas those that those banks that haven't started to really think about that are sort of falling further and further and faster and faster behind and so there is a concern that there's going to be this this real gap emerging um between those who are really focusing on this and those who really aren't. So it's interesting when I, before I attended your webinar last week, I was thinking to myself going, well, why does publishing your research and finding the patents even matter? Well, you mentioned it, but it's kind of like a flywheel effect. Number one, it shows that there's senior management commitment to AI because they're putting resources toward these elements. But just as importantly, and you brought up in your webinar that that this helps generate talent, which takes care of getting some more research done, more patents are filed, and management gets a, a more well-rounded um, dive into the AI area. So you did mention that, that North American banks accelerated uh, ahead of European banks across multiple metrics. What do you attribute this gap to? Because in many ways, European banks in some areas have been more out there, more innovative. But what what is making the big difference here? Yes, I mean, I w- and I would ca- I would say that there are there are European banks who do incredibly well. I mean, from you can see in from from the index, we do see some European players very high up on the rankings. Got um, ING, UBS, BNP Paribas that um, have a very innovative culture and are are very strong, but they do take a slightly different tack, which is more of a engineering approach where the solutions are embedded uh, in the lines of business, where you would look at a use case, um, you look at a problem and and, looking at, so okay, so which which models and how do we solve that um, in the business lines? So they're quite decentralized. Um, many of them have not um, established a center of excellence or a research lab or a central unit to make some decisions around um, you know, what to prioritize. And more importantly, I think when you look at the role of the, the central uh, centralization or the, the sort of hubs that sit in the center and go across business lines, um, those are you know, especially now with generative AI, that really showed the, the value of having a centralized body that looks across the bank because generative AI can be used across many lines of business. So if there is a, you know, a thinking through sort of what generative AI tools are we using? How are we going to, you know, look at all of the hundreds of use cases where it can be used across the lines of business? Where do we centralize all of this? And how do we make a decision on what to prioritize? That is, is, is much harder to do if it's uh, done by, you know, decentralized and by the line, within the lines of business. Because how do you make a decision on what to, to go with um, if it's a bank-wide decision on, on how to prioritize and invest in generative AI? But that's not just for generative AI. That's also, um, you know, you're talking about the, the sort of value of research 
you know, many of the American banks would argue, look, we do, we do research that is not just you know, for, for sort of short-term problem solving, but we try to look at the horizon and look at what are the problems that might, may arise in sort of three to four or five years. So banks that have been deeply uh, deep in the weeds of the research of synthetic data, say, or causal AI or uh, deep learning and neural networks are much more able to deploy this across the lines of business in the bank, which are, you know, AI capabilities that are cross-cutting. So again, back to sort of the sort of what's the value of centralization and, and the value of research. That is that you're much more able to, to productionize this type of research as the problems arise and, and where the use cases arise. So that's the value of having it decentralized. And I think what the European banks um, have done in the past and sort of still doing, but I think a lot of them are rethinking that now is, is a much more sort of an engineering and decentralized approach to be like, let's let's just be really specific with what we're pulling in of capabilities to solve exactly the problems that was that we have right in front of us right now. So it's a bit more short-term um, focus and perhaps not as long-term as as really um, AI requires you to be, um, because it takes time to get your head around, you know, what these tools can do and what sort of problems they can solve. And sometimes you just need to have that capability build up in the in the organization in order to to respond to problems long, you know, medium to long term. So obviously the bigger banks have a leg up because of their ability to invest in research, patents and talent. But is it it's the ability to become an AI mature organization only possible for the biggest banks or can composable solutions where AI talent and research comes from outside the financial institution provide an avenue for AI maturity at smaller organizations? No, absolutely. I mean, and I would just I would just say that we um, when we look at when we compile the index, we look at a lot of the data in proportion to the size of the banks. That means that smaller banks um, can do quite well, as I mentioned before. You know, TD Bank is not a big bank, but it sits in the top ten. And that is because it has, you know, in proportion to its size, a high level of yeah. AI talent. It has a, you know, it has a very forceful and strong sort of innovation. You know, it's very, you've got a lot of activity in all of those six levers, six, seven levers of, of AI innovation um, and so on. So, so you know, according to the way we've structured it, it's not that it's just the bigger banks that prevail here because they've got more money to spend. It really is showcasing that with a decision and with prioritizing the resources into AI investment and in investing in the reorganization of the banks, um, you can actually do incredibly well. And you can, um, you know, you can, um, it, you know, so it's not just the, the, the firepower that you have. Now, JP Morgan has, uh, you know, a lot of resources that it put to, to, to work in the AI space is probably the bank that spends most in absolute terms, but also in, in proportion to its size on AI. Uh, just in, 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 its, in it, I think it spent 14 billion this year on, on digital transformation and AI, when AI is making up a larger, larger proportion of that spend. Uh, but it is, you know, but that sort of, that sort of, they, you know, they get to sort of both the sort of the volume, the absolute numbers and, and the proportion uh, tick marks there. But you can absolutely be a smaller bank and uh, and w with the decision to to make this a priority, um, you know, and and sort of get moving now, you definitely have the opportunity to do do very very well. And then you can decide like how much do we want to, as a smaller bank, you know, you're up against decisions such as, do we spend on building this in house, or is it better for us to actually buy some of the solutions that are already out there and and incorporate them into our existing structures. And so that's the debate that's that's very much happening in the sort of in the smaller banks right now. Where is the sort of what's the cost benefit analysis of that? The bigger banks have a tendency to build as much as they can in house for a variety of reasons. Um, but the smaller banks now, and also with with the sort of the advancement and the sophistication of the AI vendors and and tools out there, you can actually achieve an enormous amount by buying a lot of this um, from from outside sources. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's going to be interesting, too, because I, I, if I'm a mid-sized or small organization, I'm going to want an AI maturity model for the people I might partner with because it, it's outside the, in many cases, outside the financial institution realm. But 
in the solution provider realm. So it's it's going to be an interesting dynamic because it's it's so um, liquid, it's so fluid out there as far as what can be done. You know, one other thing you found was that six of the sixty banks you analyze, only six were seriously pursuing patents as an innovation yeah. strategy. How important is the focus on patents? Why aren't more banks doing it? And how do you equate patents to the importance of banking innovation? Is it simply a stake of risk reward that the more stakes you put in the ground, the more likely is you're going to hit some? Yeah, it, it was very interesting. And again, you see many more, um, you know, it's the US banks that, that double down on yeah. patenting. The European banks don't do that so much. And there's sort of some structural reasons in that. It's also slightly harder to patent in Europe than it is in the US. But it's also sort of a, um, it, it goes through it goes through phases, the, the questions of patents. Um, some banks have had just a culture of patenting pretty much everything. Capital One, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. Or Bank example. of America yeah, bank exactly. is, is another yes, one. Yes. And, 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 and there's sort of some, some, you know, some of that is a bit, you know, is a defensive move. We've got, um, you know, there, you know, we've got, you know, areas that, that, you know, they, they feel they want to um, put a ring, you know, put a moat around and, and patent for, because they might need that in the future. So, you know, you're just, you're, you're sort of creating that defense line and you're using the patent strategy for that to put a stake in the ground and make sure that no one steps into that. And some create just lots and lots of patents because, you know, there's some of them are tradable. So it actually becomes a line of business in and of itself. Um, but you definitely see the patents in areas that are, you know, differentiated areas as they call them, right? They're sort of, they're very close to, um, you know, high revenue growth in areas that are moving quite quickly. Um, Whereas you see a lot of the research that gets um, submitted are on, on on maybe less competitive areas. So you sort of see a flip side. You get a lot of research papers in areas that are maybe not so competitive, but you see all of the, obviously, all of the patterns take place in, in areas that are very competitive. Um, so you, uh, and then you've got some banks who do neither. They don't patent or they don't publish their research and they keep, you know, they keep it very much in-house yeah. and don't want to, to express anything externally at all because they want to, to sort of keep a very, you know, arms around it uh, and, and to themselves. So, um, so you, you have a variety of strategies. But I mean, you know, in, in the past at least, you know, the patenting from you know, banks' point of view has been... Uh, a way in which you can demonstrate your innovation. And it has been also to put a stake in the ground and say, look, we're innovative and we are patenting our innovations. And a way to demonstrate the, the innovation has been through the, you know, been through a model of patenting. Now, where that goes in the future, I mean, many are saying that the trend, you know, some banks are doubling down. You see some banks are, are, are you know, you know, thinking that this is actually a trend um, that, you know, they, they've decided not to double down on the patents for a variety of reasons. They don't see that that is, that is benefiting them that much or creating that much value. So it's interesting. It's one we watch, obviously, very closely. We have a patent tracker. So we see every patent on AI uh, going out um, from the bank side. Um, but it's interesting to follow. And we do topic modeling as well on it so we can see exactly um, you know, what topics, what areas um, banks are, are you know, keen to patent on. So let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsors of this podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. Welcome back. I'm joined today by Alexandra Musavisade, co-founder and CEO of Evident. We've been discussing the components of an AI maturity research that was done by Evident and the importance of AI innovation for the future financial institutions. So Alex, you know, this whole research you've done is talking about AI maturity from the standpoint of investments and commitment to the technology. How do you figure out how successful organizations are? Because I've talked to some of the bigger players that you interviewed, and many of them say, geez, we feel like we're behind on um, being able to personalize experiences across the entire spectrum of a, a customer journey. 
So investments by themselves doesn't equate to success. How do we figure that out? Yeah, it is. Um, it's the big question. It is. Uh, it's very early days. Uh, when we set out to do the index, we uh, it was it was we were trying to figure out how do we measure the outputs, i.e., the efficacy of the AI investment, yeah. because that's on everyone's mind. I'm spending all of this money uh, on on all, getting all of the components of the ecosystem as strong as it can get from you know from my talent to my data to my innovation structures and so on, um, with the view that that having having a strong ecosystem will lead to good outcomes. Um, now we're really at a point where we've it's, it's sort of we've reached a tipping point where the banks have invested now for you know five six seven years. Um, a lot of it up until maybe a year ago was explorative. So let's explore this. Let's test yep. this AI model. Let's see if this reaps some benefits. Let's see if this works. To now we're fully in a mode where it is the it is it's um, there's an expectation of return on investment. There's an expectation of better output and better products. Um, Hyper personalization, um, much better fraud management, better cybersecurity. Um, a lot, you know, faster trading, better, you know, uh, loan and and credit lines and and so on analysis, um, fewer defaults. All of this rests on AI, and all of this is now coming through. Um, the experimentation has been done. Um, the AI models are in production. Um, they are now being used, and they're obviously, you know, there's a lots of there's feedback loops constantly to improve it but we're at a point where um, senior management um, is asking for return on investment on the AI in the specific use cases in the specific lines of business what is the dollar value of this use case and um, what is the return on investment all banks are calculating this internally it's um, it's a very difficult thing to isolate um, you know, because one thing is that you can have a really good team and a really good model um, and all, you know, and invested heavily in that. But sometimes it's it's practical things of getting from model to production that have nothing to do with your AI capabilities. Um, but it can be, you know, product management and, and strategy, uh, identifying the low hanging fruit, you know, really seeing where uh, with little effort and actually maybe not as sophisticated a model, we can actually get enormous amounts of return just by doing, you know, doing this, that, and the other. But but um, but in being able to spot that and having the people sort of along the pipeline who can help move from model to production is sometimes where it falls down, right? So so looking at you know the entirety of what you know of the elements that go into successful implementation. And you know, impact on product is um, is not just about the models. Um, so, what we are actually going to be doing end of year is going to be um, well. In October, we're going to be publishing a very big report on use case mapping, where we're going to be going through how do you measure return on investment. It's uh, internally debated. You know, uh, we know internally in banks you would have a dollar figure that. That that would be disputed internally because it's you know what's how do you create you know the attribution to AI is a, is not a sort of a, a straight line. Yep. But if, uh, what we are intending to do is trying to come up with a blueprint of how to do that, um, and then end of year we'll be looking at um, creating that uh, measurements of output where we can in the in the uh, public space, um, but and then you know equivalent to NPS scores. Uh, but very AI related. And then we are going to be doing a more in-depth, as I said before, uh, private look uh, and benchmark at all of those critical questions that banks don't necessarily want to put in the public sphere, but aspects of, you know, um, sophistication of model, time to production and return on investment. Because really, once you have that, then you can draw the line back to, well, what capabilities that was invested in created the biggest success, yep. right? What's what are the, what's the correlation between the inputs and the outputs, and that's really where we want to want to land. But up until now, I would say, and and really, the banks still even wanting to know what the output is are really comparing themselves and thinking about 
having a strong AI ecosystem. And that's where this public index comes in. No doubt. And that, you know, if they're investing in it, you're going to get your your return on investment in to a certain degree. Yeah. But but as you said, in a general way to say, how does an investment in risk risk and fraud compare to the investment on customer experience? What's the impact of democratizing democratizing the the distribution of insights as opposed to simply being great reports. You know, we, we talk about this all the time in our business that, that, you know, it, it, it's great if you have all this information, but if you're not deploying it and not making it so customers see the same information across all channels, you've really weakened the value of what you have invested in. And in many cases, organizations have spent millions of dollars simply getting great reports on what their customer base looks like, but never taking the final mile to say, how do I deploy against that? And you know, you're, you're referencing the 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 ability to look at private, um, you know, engagements and being able to even measure on a global basis the the value of these investments and getting some basic trends. You're going to get a good feel for that. But but it, again, it starts at you know how much you're committing to AI. You know, one other interesting thing is that what types of AI are you investing in? You know, obviously, we talked about ChatGPT already and generative AI impacting the competitive landscape, you know, is it, it's an investment in chat GPT functionality, generative AI functionality, more valuable than another type of investment. I mean, I would imagine that's going to eventually come out of this, re, this analysis that you're doing of financial institutions, correct? Yes, that's right. I mean, I think, I mean, it, generative AI is obviously a game changer for many, many businesses, and it's definitely going to be very useful for banks, and it already is. Um on on, uh, on the code side, but also on supporting, you know, financial analysts on the, you know, wealth management side and for sales and marketing. But there are lots of things that generative AI cannot do for banks because it's not a, generative AI does not throw up a zero or a one. So it can't make a decision, but it's very good at pulling information together and coming up with something that sounds pretty good. But when you're making uh, decisions on, on loans and credit lines and mortgages and so on, you know, that's in a different side. That's where you're looking at sort of machine learning tools and so on that um, have been invested in and used by banks for, you know, a decade, uh, if not more. And it's becoming more and more sophisticated. And I think the sort of the um, outside of generative AI, it is, you know, that's very much the lion's share of where banks are investing. Machine learning, neural networks, deep learning and causal AI and synthetic data, because that's all pointed to the parts of the business that's, you know, that is, is huge revenue generators, which is loan books and, and so on. So, and the trading side as well, where generative AI you can't, simply can't be used. So while it definitely can be used for some things and can help cut some costs and create some efficiencies in the banks, the banks also, we must remember, are highly regulated. So generative AI is a particularly tricky one to use for banks, especially when it touches any of the customer data. And you've got to be super careful with that. Um, from data privacy perspective. But so so <clears throat> what they're investing in right now, I mean, it's interesting because we thought we were going to see sort of relatively quickly a hike in, in, in job openings that were related to generative AI, you know, prompt engineers, data engineers in general. But there really hasn't been that yet. We anticipate that's going to come up in the next quarter or two. But right now, banks are really busy looking at what are my use cases? Where can I use generative AI? Yeah. Identifying them and now... I think we're going to see in Q3 and Q4 a slew of announcements of generative AI being putting, put into production, but on internal per, internal data only. So for efficiency gains on internal data, nothing that touches the um, customer data at this stage is much too dicey to use generative AI for that. But then what's on the horizon? On the horizon are things such as quantum. You know, we follow that yeah. very closely as well. And then the sort of combination of quantum capabilities and AI are, are particularly interesting for banks and, and potentially uh, existential. When I start, you know, getting my head into, uh, you know, and talking to the people around us who do do the quantum, you know, capability side and the companies that that are starting to look at that for banks, you're looking at generative AI and thinking, oh boy, that's like not even scratching the surface, what really is going to upend everything is once quantum capabilities are really there, that's going to upend all transactions, you know, cyber security, firewalls, and trading particularly are the areas that, you know, trading speeds would be, you know, unrecognizable with quantum capabilities. 
So those banks that are preparing for that now is something we're watching out for, like who's getting themselves um, ready for that and who's, you know, and, and most of the big banks are already hiring quantum teams um, just and looking at use cases. And that's really interesting to follow. Well, it's interesting, too, because as I dig in my mind, what the possibility of all this is, you have organizations like Bank of America that have massive amounts of data and research from their Erica implementation, something that many people said, yeah, who, who needs this voice banking thing? But the transformation of what they've been able to do in that platform is certainly amazing feeder information for a generative or a con conversational AI model that that most institutions really don't have captured yet because they ha weren't doing it in the way they were doing it. You know, so the way the inputs, as you mentioned, you know, how valuable are the inputs to go with the the other inputs that can combine to work together. So, you know, when you, what area do you see, you know, being in this space for quite some time, what area of AI innovation do you actually expect to take off in the next three years, let's say? Yeah, that's a good question. It is, um, I mean, I'm really curious to see, first of all, I mean, a game changer will be if the um, next generation, generations of large language models yeah. become precise enough to be used on, you know, um, customer data. And if it's accurate enough, because then I think we're going to see, a, you know, a, a range of new products coming out of that from the banks, because then all of a sudden you can have uh, personalized um customer interactions that are AI driven only, right? So, so that, that, that could potentially be, be a, a sort of a, a, you know, definitely something to watch out for. You've got a chat GPT five, six or seven. That would be interesting. That would be then sort of a, 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 the nature of banking will look quite, quite different if, if that's the case. And then there's a lot of, you know, speculation around how, you know, the, the large language models are, have they sort of reached a plateau because OpenAI has basically trained on the entirety of the internet and so there's not a lot more data to train on. So it does, it is hitting ceilings. And the question is, how can you make it more accurate if you've if you reach the end of all the data that you can train on? So let's see, we're watching that. You know, and again, I think I, you know, as I said before, I really think that um that that quantum is going to be an and a game changer beyond all of the you know, AI out there and the combination of AI and quantum is going to be one to watch out for. Um, unsupervised machine learning, you know, deep learning, <clears throat> all of that that is just making the banks faster and smarter and better all the time. And as they as they continue to improve, um, the ones that are sitting on the front end of that are going to reap the benefits and are just going to create and obtain more and more market share. And the ones who are not are probably not going to be in business. Um, I think that what I would not have said six months ago, but I think what we're seeing now is that the changing the bank versus running the bank question has changed. To run the bank, you have to change the bank. You can't just, the running the bank has gone. In order to run the bank, you have to change the bank. And I think that is the big difference now. And that the big difference now, because you're seeing an accelerated pace of AI innovations that are going to have a big impact on the financial services sector. So if you're not going to change the bank mindset and only a run the bank mindset, I think it's game over. Boy, I, that, by the way, I'm going to attribute it to you, but that quote can be used again because it's such a key element that, you know, I, I, I was looking at my question about what innovations you see taking place in the next three years. And you really talked about probably the next 18 months at, at, at the most. And what's interesting, it wasn't but five years ago that we were saying, what do you see happening in the next five to 10 years? We don't talk about the time frame anymore. There's a lot of reasons for that, but it's the speed of change. And, and you said it, that those organizations that aren't putting pieces in place today will never catch up because it's only going faster. You know, I talked to a gentleman from IBM recently and on a podcast and I said, you know, I'm maybe I'm overthinking this, but is is the transformation of AI going faster than even the technologists that built it? And he goes, it has definitely happened that way. That that basically it's almost creating its own innovation. And we're we're all trying to to harness it, trying to capture that fire. So it's it's very interesting. So 
let's say I'm a modest size organization and I'm trying to take one piece of advice from your research around how I can boost my AI maturity today, what would it be? The first thing to do is to set, and I know it sounds, you know, but is to set a strategy. You've got to know where you're going. If you don't figure out what your strategy is, do you want to be able to adopt generative AI and uh, build, you know, machine learning and, and those kinds of capabilities to make the company better? You have to know where you're going. You've got to have a, both a centralized and a decentralized decision making. You've got to have a place where AI decisions for the organization ladders up to a hub that can prior, help prioritize. And you've got to infuse the, you know, the entirety of the organization with AI talent. Because if you're sitting in the engine room and you're just doing the same thing you've done over and over again, without any AI capability, you're never going to spot where the AI can help you. If you're sitting alongside an AI engineer, you know, and, uh, you know, AI developer, data scientist, data engineer, who can say, hang on a second, you've done that thing 20 times today. There's a, there's a better way to do that. Oh, you know, exactly. That, that's going to make my life a lot easier, right? But you, if you don't have your AI engineer sitting alongside in the engine room, you know, working on the products, working with the with the team um, on a day-to-day basis, you won't spot the opportunities. You've got to have the AI talent to spot the opportunities. So you've got to infuse the organization with AI talent. So you've got to double down on hiring AI talent as soon as you possibly can. Boy, that is so key because, as you said, you have to make it so the AI goes all the way to the top, but it also has to be distributed across the whole organization. And it it actually reminds me on a very, very simplistic basis, uh, uh, Google Maps, that, you know, as I'm using a GPS system, if I don't know where I'm going, uh, the GPS has no value. On the other hand, if I don't have inputs from every other driver that's using the map system at that time, and if we're not talking back and forth, you also lose all value because you're not getting the real-time changes in the marketplace or changing the road situation that you would otherwise. And and I think that's such a key learning for innovation in general, but as banking is general, that if if we stay pat, if we look at this as simply like implementing new technology, it, it will never work. It's evolving. And, you know, unfortunately, banking has gone through its entire legacy with data owned by a department and had to be asked for based on what your needs were. If I was a direct marketer, I had to ask for data that reinforced the project I was doing, and it would probably take a year later to get the results back from what I did. That's no longer going to make it. And I, I think that's not just with AI, but any innovation, but very key. You know, your research obviously blew me away. I wouldn't have contacted you so quickly if it wasn't for that. How do our listeners get a copy of a 51-page research report? Ah, yes. Well, I mean, and how much does we, it cost? No, it's it's we I mean, we are you you know, radical, <laughs> radical transparency. Um, we are on um, evidentinsights.com. And you can just put your name and your email address in in there. Um, and you click on our insights tab. And you can download our key findings report from January, our talent report from June and our innovation report from um, a week ago. Then we've got our use case mapping report coming out and we've got a leadership report coming out um, also in October and we're doing a responsible AI report. And then in November, we expand and update the index from 23 banks to 50 and we are going to release a key findings report then as well. So just go online and you can just uh, download it for free. So we are going to also put a link on the host on the uh episode notes so that people can directly link from the the podcast notes itself. And and one last question I, f- I forgot to ask you, what were you most surprised about when you did your research? What, what kind of just blew you away and said, I didn't expect that. <laughs> yeah, I think um, it's, it's a very good, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. We crowd around the computer when we had uploaded all the data and we hit you hit the button to, uh, <laughs> to 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 see the rankings for the first time, and and uh, we sort of fell silent for a while, looking at at the the clear domination. I mean, I, as I said in the beginning, it was a clear domination in the index of the North American banks. And I think the surprising thing was to see two Canadian players 
Um, it, not surprising when you sort of dig into sort of how they've organized themselves and they sort of set up just like um, the big US banks and, and sort of got that mindset. But that was, that was quite surprising. It was very surprising to see um, the UK banks um, not doing well at all. Um, and that is uh, that was that was a bit surprising to see them so so low down on on the index. I think, um, and then I think the um, the third element of surprise is just how how small the pool of AI talent is. Everyone talks about yeah. the war on talent, and then you know when you actually have a you know a, a, you know data point on sort of what is the size of that AI talent pool that sits in the banks. It's it's really small. So there really is a war on talent, um, which does make me a bit nervous. Well, and, and it's not just within the financial services industry. It, it's a war on talent with yeah. every company everywhere. Yeah, that is that is true. So I think that's <clears throat> maybe not so much a surprise, but I think the surprise was just how tight that market is. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I think it is, um, you know, there's a lot of knocking on doors at universities at uh, computer science programs right now. Getting, uh, getting, uh, getting the, getting them young straight into the banks. That is, that is what we're seeing for when sure. I, when I told my son, I said, "Data analytics and AI," you, and he graduated with it and he's doing well. But it's one of those things you go. If I can give you one recommendation, I can see a train come down the road, and and the challenge now, as you are probably well aware, is that there's not much talent in the universities to teach it because they've all gone to private business. The 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 payoff is so huge that it almost makes more sense to go to a community college where people give back by teaching, even though they're, a, they're actually an implementer in the marketplace. But it, it's crazy time. Alexandra, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. Such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed, winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoy what we're doing, please take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research you're doing on the Digital Bank Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Hassage, and audio engineer and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember, AI has the ability to unleash the full potential of intelligent innovation, transforming banking, and redefining the future. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business, when you need it, from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.